You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. Pretty excited for this podcast. I want to do one of these at least once a year where we just kind of go over all the stuff that we tried, give our thoughts on it. I agree. I think it's a, you know, especially because we try to use a, a fair amount of things and change things up just to kind of test different gear and stuff out. Right. Even if something works fine, it's like we oftentimes will try something else just because just to see yeah. if it's better and than just what kind we of, already have. Yeah. Kind of explain why we wanted to try it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, yeah, what I have is good, but I'm looking for something that may be more like this. And I know for me, there was a ton of things on the archery side of things that fit that bell. So I got two new bows this spring. I got the new breed GX2 and then the new breed Striker RK1, one of which is obviously a compound, one of which is a recurve. And I spent, I don't know how many thousands of arrows I've probably put through that RK1 already. And I put through quite a few on the GX2 as well. Before I had that GX2 from New Breed, I had a 2011 Bowtech Invasion that I had shot essentially since 2011. And I never really thought that I needed a new compound. But I have to say, after I started shooting that GX2, after about a month of shooting it, I got to the point where I started liking it more than that Invasion. So what's your preferred ATA um, axle-to-axle length on your compound bows, or do you have one? Uh, I guess I don't really have one. I'm not a super short ATA guy. I like probably a minimum of 32, and I could probably go up to like a 34, 35 and still be pretty happy. But one thing that the shorter ATA gives me that I kind of like is the ability to, you know, kind of shoot it sitting down almost, where I can just, especially like if you're out west, elk hunting or turkey hunting, even if I wanted to use it, it just opens up a lot more shooting opportunities, having that shorter ATA, which a guy of my height, six foot, I wouldn't really be able to do that as well with like a 34 or 35 inch ATA bow. Yeah, see, I two years ago, I guess, uh, 2016, so I guess that was actually last year, um, I bought a PSE, the short one, the PSE Decree IC, but then I bought HD cams, so I had it converted to uh, the smoother drawing cams on the shorter axle-to-axle bow. So it came out at like 31 and a quarter or 31 and a half inches because I was planning on tree stand hunting with it before I moved to Utah. And then once I moved to Utah, I really regret having a shorter axle-to-axle bow. I just feel like I can shoot the longer axle-to-axle bows better. 
So for me, I like that 34 to 36 inch range. I just feel like I shoot them a lot better than I do this little 31 inch. Yeah, I think if I lived out there too, I'd probably go with a longer ATA boat as well. But for me, yeah, it's mostly tree stands and um, on the ground stuff. I guess if I'm shooting from the ground, it's either out of like a, a sling or I'm literally just sitting on the ground or on my knees and just having that shorter bow out east here is a little bit easier to deal with. Yeah, and I picked up a, a Hoyt Satori. It's the 17-inch riser, if I remember correctly. I picked it up in a trade. Uh, I traded a the Hoyt Game Master 2 for the Satori. And I, I don't know, I mean, it's just me. I can't shoot that bow very well for being a traditional bow, you know, compared to even some of my self bows. Um, I've just had a difficult time getting it tuned um, and just, I don't know, something about the riser. I don't like the grip on the riser. I've taken the grip off and I've shot with two or three different grips. I just, for me, I've just something about that particular riser that I just don't like. It doesn't, doesn't seem to work well for me for some reason. Interesting. Have you shot bows that are a lot longer riser in the aluminum side of things like 19, 21? Yeah. So I've shot, I've shot some 19s before and I really like them. So I don't know if it's the 17 but even, you know, like most of my self bows are, you know, short, basically from tip to tip, but they bend through the handle. Right. So I have, you know, basically the same amount of working limb, given you're comparing a self bow to a, you know, an IFL, ILF riser bow. So, you know, I don't know what it, I don't know if it's a 17 inch riser. I just don't know what it is about this bow. I don't know if it's a grip. I, I don't know. It's got me bum fuzzled. Are you a big fan of the ILF? In general? I am. There's just so much adjustability and tuning in it that you can do. Uh, it gives you a lot more versatility in the bow. You know, it's easy to sw- to switch limbs. You can find, you know, you can go from longbow limbs to recurve limbs depending on the riser. Uh, you know, you can adjust the percentage, you know, 3% basically of the draw weight. Uh, so that to me, there's just a, a lot of benefits to an ILF riser. Yeah, I kind of thought I was that way too. And I think I maybe still lean that way a little bit for the functionality. If I was to shoot like a, a pure target bow and use it for target shooting. But I think there's also something to be said about just the simplicity of a bow where you just strap the limbs on and just go. And the only real tunability, tunability you have of the bow is moving the knocking point or moving the rest in or out. I think for a lot of people, it's especially people that, come from the compound world and just want something simple. I think sometimes not going with an ILF almost opens up a whole new can of worms for a lot of people. I agree to a point. I think the ILF gives you a little bit more versatility and adjustability. So for somebody new coming in, if they get too heavy of a bow, they can simply swap the limbs out on an ILF versus somebody who buys, you know, say a, you know, a bear, whatever, Kodiak Magnum, um, you know, they're going to be stuck with those limbs. They got to sell the entire bow versus I think to me, you're more custom bows. That's why, you know, a lot of them are more specific in draw weight is because you know exactly what you need. You've shot enough traditional bows. You know, you need a, you know, a 58 inch bow, 62 pounds at, you know, 28 inches. Yeah. And, uh, my RK one is, is kind of a mixture between the two. It's not a full blown ILF. You can swap the limbs, but you're going to be using striker limbs, no matter what limbs you go with, it's just, you can either choose the longbow limbs or the recurve. And there's obviously various weights that you can choose. You don't have the full blown adjustability of an ILF, but if I wanted to shoot like 30 pound longbow limbs, I could do that. 
or I, right, like right now I have the 50 pound recurve limbs and that's what I'm using for hunting and what I have been using for target. If I use it for more target next year, I might get another set of limbs that are a little bit lighter. And the downfall to that to me is you're stuck having to buy those limbs. So if those limbs, I don't know what they cost, if they're $400, you're stuck having to buy a $400 set of limbs for that riser. Whereas with an ILF, you can go buy a, you know, a trad tech limb that's going to cost you a hundred bucks for the limbs to figure out if that price range or if that poundage weight is going to work for you. And then you can upgrade limbs later, um, not being stuck buying a specific type of limb. You know, the Hoyt Game Masters were the same way. You had to buy Hoyt limbs on them. You could change the weight on it. I just, you know, to me, the ILF works well. Um, you can, you know, different manufacturers, different limbs. So you can kind of get more specific on what you're looking for. Have you ever had any noise issues with ILF attachments? Yes, they can be noisy. Um, and that's part of that process you were talking about. You know, you kind of got to know how to tune that out of them um, and how to deal with that noise. Somebody new coming into it may not know how to do that, and it may just sound like metal rattling in their hand, basically. So that's something you got to consider when you look at that. Yeah, I've heard that quite a bit at the range with guys that have ILF and don't know how to tune them properly. It just sounds really loose, sounds rattly. Yeah, it can very well be. Uh, that's for sure. They are can be temperamental at times because there's so much adjustability in them. I noticed you said you didn't like the grip on that Satori, and you said you had swapped it out. Do they have interchangeable grips? Did you add something on top of it, or what did you do There's there? a company, I think it's uh, Jaeger Grips. You can buy some aftermarket grips for it. I've pulled the grips off. I took some, uh, like, plastic that you can basically – plastic beads that you can heat in boiling water and mold your own grip out of. I tried all kinds of things for it um, and just couldn't really find anything. Normally, I just like to shoot off the riser. Um, so I remove the grip on any bow, whether it's compound or traditional, I just remove the grip and I can shoot pretty well off the riser. Um, but with this bow, for some reason, I just, it doesn't shoot well for me. And I'm sure it's something I'm doing. There's no doubt about it because the bow shoots well for other people. But just for me, I just, I'm struggling with it. I was hoping to elk hunt with it this year, but I, I don't feel confident enough with it to take it out. Interesting. Yeah, I had, uh, with the grips on my bow, um, uh, it's the exact same grip between the recurve and the compound. So initially I had a little bit of issues coming from the invasion and going to the new breed where no matter what I did, everything was flying to the right, no matter where I had the rest. And what I figured it out was it was actually my grip. I was having too much of the bow on the thumb side of the lifeline. And once I kind of figured out what a good repeatable grip was, then I Basically, once I figured it out on one bow, I could just copy that exact same grip over to the other bow, and then it was problem solved from there on out. You know, I've gone with both. I've had either, you know, the thin compound grip. I've also had, like, on some of the bows that I've made or have shot from other people in the trad world where it's a lot thicker of a, a grip, almost like a vertical, like Howard Hill-style grip. I've shot a few of those, and, I mean, I just can't shoot anything really well other than just that real thin kind of torque free grip yeah i agree the thin the thin grips for me are the the better grips for bows moving from the bow um is there anything arrow related um broadheads anything like that that you've you tried this year that you worked well for you yeah i got i tried a whole ton of arrow and broadhead related stuff so i had uh some standard diameter arrows actually from new breed to try out they're called the Newbreed Shanks, which I think is very similar to some of the Black Eagle arrows. It's a standard diameter shaft, uh, 
3000 straightness tolerance. But what I was able to, to try out with the standard diameter shaft, and normally I'm a micro diameter guy. There's a product from web a company called web products called the Acert, And instead of being an insert that you just glue into the front of your arrow shaft, it's like a two piece insert system. So you have one piece of the insert that just glues into the shaft like normal. And then the actual threaded portion of the insert would come in from the backside and you'd tighten it with a long wrench. So what that allows you to do is you can index your broadheads at any time. So you can screw them on and then decide you want to back out that insert nut, rotate your broadhead 15 degrees, tighten it back down. So from a compound world where I never really indexed my broadheads, it wasn't like that big of a deal, but from a recurve standpoint, being able to have all my broadheads perfectly in alignment, because sometimes you get those inserts glued in, it's like the, you know, the length of the threads don't necessarily always match up. And so all of a sudden you get arrows that are, you might get them perfectly aligned one time, and then you go and change your broadhead out. And now it's not quite in alignment with those Acert, uh, Acerts from web. They seem to be really nice from that standpoint. And then I went to micro diameters anyway, later in the season, just cause I have a micro diameter guy. So I tried out some victory vaps. I still use the gold tip Pierce platinums in my compound. I really like those, but I just wanted to try something different too with the, the victory arrows. And I'm going to, pretty big fan of those too. I use the stainless steel heavier insert or outserts, I guess, for those. Well, they're, I guess they're kind of inserts slash outserts. There's only a really small portion of the, of that uh, component that actually rides over the top of the shaft. Unlike the gold tips. It's only like an eighth of an inch on the, on the vaps. Right. It's not very long compared to the gold tips where it's a significant portion of that outer shaft that's covered. Yeah. So do you, do you like the insert outsert system or are you strictly in, in, do you prefer an insert if you can get it or does it matter to you? I like insert slash outsert. Um, I just think it's a little bit stronger of a system. And so like if you have an insert slash outsert system, you can basically have your insert extended a long distance into the shaft. And basically with that insert is just creating like a rigid section. So then your, your kink point or your break point becomes right at the back end of that insert. And then when you have an outsert attached over the top of that, that isn't quite as long as the insert, it kind of lowers the intensity of that kink point or that break point. So now it's spread between two distinct points instead of just one. So I think from that standpoint, it makes it a little bit stronger, acts a little bit like a strain relief. So from a strictly design standpoint, I like insert outsert systems more than either just an insert or just an outsert. Yeah, I completely agree. For me, I use the uh, Beeman ICS wideouts. The, they're in that white real tree pattern. I do that just because I'm colorblind, so it makes it easier for me to see blood on the arrow. But at the Total Archery Challenge here in Snowbird last year, I lost four arrows because when I shot in the target, I hit something in the target, whether it was like the metal leg stand that comes up through the front of the leg on some of the Reinhardt targets. Um, but it actually mushroomed my arrow. It pushed my point and insert back into my arrow and actually cause my arrow at the very end to mushroom. So I lost 50% of my arrows at the total archery challenge last year because I actually hit the target and that point was shoved back in there. Whereas if you had an insert outsert system, you wouldn't have that mushrooming effect because you have the outsert to prevent the mushrooming effect and you transfer that energy more down the arrow shaft instead of in the hollow section of the arrow shaft causing it to mushroom. Right. So I agree with you on the insert outserts. Right. And you still have to double check. I mean, it's a good idea too, if that 
happens even with an insert outsert system. I know there's some, there's been some traditional guys that I've seen that they use footing from like an aluminum arrow shaft to do kind of the same thing. And they'll shoot it at something hard and say, Oh, cool. It works really well. My arrow's still in one piece. And then if they take that, uh, that little piece of footing off, they would have found that their arrow was splintered at the end or something that they would have noticed if they hadn't taken that off and checked. But yeah, I do think it's, I agree with you that I think the insert outsert system is preferable. So what about on the back end of that arrow? Um, I switched to a four fletch this year. Uh, it just seems to me shooting in the wind, it's a little bit more predictable in the wind drift, uh, especially out here in Utah, it gets pretty windy. Whereas, you know, a th- shooting a three fletch, you could really see your arrow kind of fishtail a lot in the wind, but the grouping was kind of lateral basically. So shooting in the same wind, and I'm sure some of this can have to do with the amount of wind resistance, especially at longer distances. But when I switched to four fletch, it seemed like I got more of a consistent wind drift, even though it may be a little bit more. It seemed like my arrows grouped better um, because basically the amount of surface area is similar as that arrow rotates through the air. So if, I'm not sure everybody's seen it. When you shoot a three fletch in windy conditions, you'll see that tail. It may move, you know, three or four inches to the right and then flutter back left and then right again and it flutters. Whereas to me, it seems like with a four fletch, that arrow seems to just consistently drift more. You don't see that tail fluttering in the wind as much. So I went to a, a four fletch and on the, on my compound arrows, I went to, they're the Vantech Swifts. They're a 2.88 inch long and they're a 0.45 inch high. And then I went to a very similar win on feathers for the Satori. I went with the Ozark feathers. It was the, the 3D Max, and it's, again, it's about a 2.8-inch feather that's about 0.45 inches high. And to me, I think that's just like the perfect profile shape um, for a fletching, and it seems to really work well for me this year, except for the Satori. I just can't get anything to group out of it, though. I'm, I'm like you. I'm a four-fletch guy for the compound. Uh, I've tried this year going to three fletch and going with bigger, bigger veins. Um, but then eventually went back to a four fletch. I just, I like the, the way that it flies. Um, I guess I don't really have a whole lot of quantitative data as to support why one is better than the other, other than it's, if you're using the same size fletching, you get a lot more surface area, which of course with fletching surface area is going to be the king surface area and the way that it's fletched. Um, so I usually like to try and put as much helical as I can get on it. A lot of times it's not that much with a micro diameter shaft. Uh, but I was using uh, two inch veins four fletched this year. I think I'm going to be switching to something similar to you where I go with a little bit longer, closer to a three inch long, a little bit lower height vein and going four fletched that way. So we'll probably be shooting pretty similar setups with my recurve. I've been doing three fletch with five inch feathers just because it's a little bit more uh, traditional, I guess. I've, I don't know. I, I've gone back and forth. I've tried some of each and I've gone, you know, Ashby style where you go four fletch with like two inch veins, like the, basically the bare minimum that you can get. And for me that, especially with the trad bow, it's, it's always like, do I want to get to a point where I'm maximizing my FOC or do I want to try and pull back a little bit and sacrifice FOC for forgiveness? And I think I leaned more toward the forgiveness realm of it and that especially comes into play after you get a few bad shots in the range uh, with minimal fletching and then you you shoot with more fletching and it corrects it a lot more. So 
I definitely not a perfect shot, especially when it comes to trad and you're not in perfect alignment every single shot, especially when you start shooting out of a tree stand. Uh, you get into some awkward angles and you can practice as much as you want. You might not have perfect alignment in the, the moment of truth. And so I think having a little bit of extra steerage on the back end of the shaft isn't necessarily a bad thing. So I, I try to maximize the feather size on my arrows to where it's more than I really need. I've always ran a five or a five and a half inch left wing on all my trad bows. Um, and, you know, this year just switching to a four fletch on my compound, I really liked it. Um, so I started playing around with it a little bit with my traditional bow. It's just kind of what led me to that. I like it because, you know, you can do not more knock tuning. So you have a, you know, a couple more spots. So if you want to rotate your, your arrow to get that one arrow that flies funny, uh, rotate it in. So you have, you know, four positions for knock tuning compared to three. Is that that big of a deal? No, not really. Uh, you know, trade off. They are, they do seem a little louder having four fletchings compared to three. But for me, that's a trade off I'm, I'm willing to take. Yeah. And they'll slow down faster too. Yeah. I know some guys like four fletch because, you know, they kind of say that it doesn't matter what side or what side is up. I can put it on one way or the other. And I don't know, for me, that doesn't really seem like that big of a benefit I, i've never i have all white fletches with even three fletch I, it's like if you, if you can't figure out which way to put the arrow on maybe you're not shooting enough <laughs> yeah i've always i've always heard that with four fletch well it doesn't matter which way you knock it and like you i shoot all white feathers or veins uh white knocks and i've never had an issue of knocking an arrow upside down in the moment of truth and a lot of times you know especially tree stand hunting you know, you, you have plenty of time to yeah. knock an arrow. Yeah. I guess a follow-up second shot maybe, but at that point, I really don't think it's going to matter if your arrow is knocked backwards. I could see out here in the West, you know, doing a follow-up shot on an elk or missing your first shot and wanting to get that second shot on there. But then again, I mean, most knocks have an indicator on them that you can feel. Right. So there's a little burr on the side of your knock. You know that that goes out uh, when you knock it, and then, you know, it's basically the same thing. Speaking of uh, quivers, are you running a hip quiver still? Yes. So, well, technically, yes, it's a hip quiver, but technically it's a bow quiver. So I've made a bracket, a DIY bracket, basically, to run a bow-mounted quiver on my pack or on my hip. Um, and it's just, for me, I hate having arrows on a bow. Um, I say that, but I like minimal arrows. So on my favorite traditional bow myself bow i have a two arrow quiver that i built on there and for me that's all i typically hunted with i'd carry a, a hip quiver with that and i'd like to do something like that for my my compound bow is some way make like a two arrow quiver um that way i have one arrow if something shows up right away or i have a quick follow-up shot right there on it but most of the time i don't like having any type of arrows on my bow so i run a, a hip quiver right now it's a uh, man, I can't even think of the name of the company. Apex Gear, uh, it's their magnetic quiver, and I've really enjoyed it. It's worked well. It broke on me this year, actually. Um, took a fall on a mountain bike down the hill and kind of broke the hood on it. But <laughs> that's nonetheless, I don't think any quiver would have survived that one. Can you sit down with those hip quivers and not have your arrows, like, sticking into, like, how does that, that's always been one of the sticking points of me and, like, hip quivers. Yeah, so the, the bracket I made, I can adjust the cant um, basically from straight up and down to a little bit back and then a, quite a bit backwards so that if I sit down, like if I'm sitting down on a rock, the broadheads are kind of where my thigh would be. 
and then the arrows are basically kind of back or the fletchings are back by the quiver so I don't have to necessarily take it off to sit down with it um, and the same thing like when I go into a spot and stock I can just pull that bracket off of my pack slip it onto my hip and then I have a complete hip quiver okay yeah I went for the tight spot the first time this year I'd always kind of held off because of how expensive they were but I decided to go with one anyway and I just bought a second bracket so that I could mount it either on my compound or my recurve. And I ended up only taking a three-arrow Alpine quiver out to Colorado just because I didn't need, you know, a fourth or a fifth arrow. But when I come back here and I'm hunting around home, I usually like to have a couple small game arrows in my quiver. And the only thing I didn't like about the tight spot, tight spot quiver was that basically if I had a squirrel arrow or two with like a, a blunt style head, they don't stick in there really well. I put a like a little O-ring, just a little bit larger than the diameter of my blunt tip to kind of just keep it from rattling around. And then I basically would just snap it in and have the quiver guards or the, the arrow grippers tighten down as, as far as I could. But even with that, it's still, those arrows like to rattle out when I shoot. So what's, so what's the issue that they're rattling out? Is there no foam in the hood? Well, the, it's not, it's not really foam. It's just like, it's just like a rubber. Um, so... It works great if you have two or three blade broadheads because there's kind of little slits already uh, carved out for those. But if you try and stick a round blunt object up there, there's nothing really for it to stick onto. It's just kind of sitting against a flat surface. So it's got more like a, almost like a broadhead wrench style slit yeah. in the rubber yeah. on the hood. So there's not actually yeah. anything you force the blades into like what you would think of on a traditional quiver. Right, that's exactly what it looks like. And so with like a foam quiver, I would always be able to just kind of carve out something that was a little bit smaller than the diameter of those blunts just so that there's some friction holding it in place. If they had a second arrow gripper closer to the broadhead, I think it would work just fine still, but they just got the one that's down on the bottom end of the quiver. So we'll see. I might try and figure something out for that. But You've got 10 or 12 inches between the gripper and the broadhead in the hood. Mm-hmm. So there's just a lot of room for that arrow. Basically, you're only holding the arrow by about the middle of it, so there's a lot of room for vibration on the broadhead end and the knock end every right. time you shoot. Interesting. Yeah, everybody seems to be flocking towards those tight spot quivers. Um, I've never really had much experience with them. Like I said, I've just run this hip quiver for years now, and I, I like it, enjoy it. Like I said, I wish somebody would come out with a, a two-arrow quiver that goes on to – a bow, a two-piece, two-arrow quiver is really all I would need. And that's, you know, for years, all I hunted with was two arrows. I'd take two arrows to the woods with me, and that was it with my self-bow for the most part. Um, then I started, I made a hip quiver and started carrying arrows in the hip quiver, and that's kind of what led me over to using the hip quiver with my compound as well. What about broadhead-wise? Um, I've been using the afflictors for two years now. I've got some 100s, some 125s, and I just bought some 150s this year because I'm going to try to go up to a heavier FOC this year. Um, I've not killed anything with them yet. The only thing I shot at, I hit a giant rock wall, and there was no (laughs) arrow or broadhead that was going to survive that. I think my arrow was in three pieces. The broadhead was busted. Uh, The only thing that survived that was the fletchings and the knock, and that's just because they flew off the arrow. I tried a few different things well i've tried plenty of different broadheads over the years but over the summer i bought some vpa three blade 150s to try out for my compound in preparation for the uh, mule deer hunt and just wasn't really all that pleased with the forgiveness of them at long range 
I'd be shooting at 60 yards and I'd have three out of four arrows that would fly right where they were supposed to. And then I would have one where my grip maybe was just off by just a hair. And that little bit of torque on the bow would all of a sudden push that arrow out seven inches to the right. And it's just like, I can't bring that out to Colorado knowing that I might not have, you know, perfect target form while I'm up on the mountain. So then kind of at the last minute, I went and switched to a mechanical, which the only mechanical I could really find that I liked at that same 150 grain weight was the Afflictor Hybrid X broadhead. And that's what I shot my mule deer with. And on one of the, both of the shots, um, cause I took two shots. The first one just had one lung and then I kind of followed the blood trail until I found the deer and then put a second arrow in them. And that one was double lung, but both broadheads opened up fully. There's huge entry wounds. I showed you the picture of those cause they're rear deploying kind of similar to how like a rage is, but the, the tip on those broadheads is really thick. I really like the, the tip and the ferrule on those. That's probably one of the biggest selling points. I think of those broadheads. I think the ferrule is a lot stronger, especially with that 150 grain stainless steel design. Um, I did have one of the blades kind of translate backwards on that first shot, but it still was open. So I still got that full wound channel, even though the, the broadhead kind of had a little bit of damage to it. Still, even though, you know, those broadheads seem to perform fairly well, I'm still a fixed blade guy. I think I probably have been for a while. I will continue to be, um, for sure with the traditional, bow, but I think with, even with the compound as well. Um, so what I'm trying out now for the compound is, uh, I got a couple of sample one packs from the Bishop archery company. Uh, so I got one of their 100s, 125s and 150s and the 125 and 150 are both non-vetted similar to those VPAs, but you know, kind of dissimilar from the VPAs. They're built differently. They're a lot shorter in length and they're thicker. So in my mind, that makes them a little bit tougher. Not that the VPAs are going to be weak by any means. I mean, they're both going to be extremely strong broadheads, I think, just because of the way they're machined out of a single piece of steel. Uh, and that three blade design with no vents is just a very strong design in general. Um, but if you were picking hairs, I think the design of the Bishop is a little bit tougher. And then because you have the same weight in a smaller package because of the shorter head, there's a little bit less surface area. So those things seem to fly a lot more forgiving. You know, it's kind of like if you imagined a, a short broadhead like a Slick Trick or like a, a QAD Exodus, and now imagine that head is machined out of a single piece of tool steel. And that's kind of what you get with those Bishop three blades. So I've still yet to put them through an animal, but they're, I mean, you can shoot them through targets for you know, hours and you pull them out and they still look very similar. They just need to be touched up a little bit on like a stone, um, before they're hunting ready again. And then with the traditional side of things, I used a VPA for a while, three blade. This year I went down to two blades. Um, and part of that was just because last year I was shooting a little bit higher poundage with my homemade longbow. This year I'm only shooting 50 pounds and I'm shooting a fixed crawl. So that combines for the lot less energy. So I'm going with two blade and single bevel. So I bought some cutthroats. Uh, I've liked those. And then I have a, a single Bishop 200 grain that I'm testing too. And those, I think, again, I like the design a little bit better. They're a little bit shorter, a little bit thicker blade. So I think they're going to be a little bit stronger than the cutthroat uh, machined again out of a single piece of tool steel. But I've yet to put those through an animal. I did put them through the top half of my block target when I was setting up that fixed crawl for the first time. <laughs> I was shooting from an elevated position to try and make it similar to how I'd be shooting out of a tree stand. And 
I hit too high and that, you know, those block broadhead targets where you just got that really hard, rigid plastic in the top, went right through that and just chiseled a big hole and put that broadhead a few inches deep into the target. And it was just wedged in there like none other. So I brought it home and I had to take a Dremel to basically carve out some room that I could wiggle the arrow around a little bit. Eventually, after about a half an hour, I was able to push the broadhead through the other end of the target and it still, it looked like it hadn't even been shot. So I've got some high hopes for those. I'm a big fan of the two blade and the single bevel. I just, to me, I've seen better performance at everything I've shot that's had two blade, single bevel, and non-vented over vented broadheads. That's the one thing about the afflictors. They have the HDs, which are more of a solid blade, and I like that design better over their vented blades, like what's on the the EXTs. And then, you know, like what you were saying, I just, I think they're just more durable because obviously there's more mass behind the blade. So if you hit bone, the blade is less likely to break. You know, I think there was only one, the Ulmer Edge was, I think, the only mechanical single bevel broadhead that I know of that was made and they quit making it. But supposedly it's supposed to come back out this year with some design changes or something like that. So that's going to be interesting to see. I like non-vented a lot better than I like vented. The only advantage that you get with vented is that they're a little bit more forgiving in flight, but every other advantage goes to non-vented. They're stronger, they're quieter in flight, they don't grab so much hair as they go through the animal. There's just a, a yeah. lot to like about the non-vented. If you can, if as long as you get them to fly right, I don't see any reason not to go with them. Yeah, vented to me are just, they're really loud, and that's the first thing that just shied me away from them. So on your bow, I know you did a video on your DIY stabilizer. How is that working for you? It's been working great. It's long. I made those long on purpose. Uh, I think my front bar is like 15 inches and the back bar is like, oh, I, I should know. It's probably 10 or I think it's about 10. Uh, and then I just have them weighted with fender washers, but they're aluminum tubing and they're covered in stealth strips to make them quieter. So I think if I were to make it a little bit better, I would have used like a carbon fiber high modulus but I just didn't want to spend that much money. That's that's a huge step up in cost, even for a DIY project. The aluminum was pretty cheap, and it works well. That's what I shot my mule deer with. I was using both of those, that stabilizer setup, front bar, back bar. And since they're decoupled, I can have the front stabilizer and the stabilizer hole, and then that rear stabilizer, I can have it basically anywhere I want on the bow riser, so I've stuck it down by the bottom cam. So anecdotally, obviously, have you noticed your shooting or your grouping get any better having a... 10A or a front bar, back bar? I think it helps me balance a little bit better. I, I haven't compared one versus the other to see if my groups are X amount of inches better one way. I just kind of go all by how steady can I hold on the target. So as long as I'm basically getting that pin float how I like it, that's kind of my main, that's what I look for. Because if I can hold steadier, I'm going to group better is kind of how I see it. I thought the same thing. I went to a, a bee stinger 10-8 stabilizer, and, and I did the same thing. So I took a bunch of weights, and I took all that, you know, how to how to adjust it if you're moving left and right versus holding tight on the, the, the spot with your pin float and basically what you needed to do, swing it out, pull it up, all that stuff, add weight to the front. I did that all this this summer, basically, leading up to this season, and I just was not happy with my shooting. I felt like I was horrible grouping. And that's all I did all summer was just play with that stabilizer on the front and the back to try to figure out what was going on. And then eventually it got 
close to season. And like I said, I just was not happy with the way I was shooting. So I just yanked my back bar off, went back to what I know. I run a, you know, a 10 inch front stabilizer and my grouping just shot way up. I was amazed at the difference that I shot with a, just a regular 10 inch stabilizer. I think it's got maybe two ounces out front compared to running a 10-8 back bar and trying to mess with it. I don't know if I just didn't find the sweet spot in that or what I did, but my grouping went back to what it should be, which is running a straight front bar. So maybe a, you know, a back bar is just not for me. That could be. Probably depends too on, you know, how you grip your bow, whether you're healing it or putting the pressure up toward the web. I know for me, I have more front weight than like the calculators would say. You know, it's like sometimes you'll, you'll see people recommend take the length of your front stabilizer times the weight and then do the same thing with the back and they should be equal, you know, trying to balance the moments around the riser. Uh, but for me, that was too much back weight doing it that way. And I had to put in a lot more front weight and a lot less rear weight to get it to where I kind of like it. Yeah. I'm not sure what, what was going on, but I, I'm just glad I figured that out pretty quickly. So what about, you mentioned, uh, release, what are you running release wise? Have you tried anything new or no, I haven't tried anything new since 2005. I got a Scott Little Bitty Goose index finger trigger release, and that's basically what I've used. I've wanted to go and at least test out, I guess a thumb style would kind of be what I'd prefer to try, but I'd also like to try if I went that route with just a, a pull through, you know, kind of like a back tension or a, a tension style release. And so now I'm looking at two releases, and if I want to go and get nice ones, that's like, you know, roughly 150 to 200 bucks a pop. So I switched to a, a Carter Whisper this year. I'd been using um, a Hot Shot Temptus three-finger, and I really liked it. I like the, the handheld style releases. Uh, I've been shooting them for years and really liked it. But with this Whisper, I wanted to go to two things that I looked for in the release was I wanted an open hook style release so I didn't have to clip it on the string. I could simply hook it onto the D-loop and draw. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted a, a full ring on my index finger. And I wanted to go to that because I wanted something that if I had it in my hand and I needed to grab my rangefinder, I could simply leave that ring on my finger and spin it around to the back of my hand, grab my rangefinder or my binoculars and be able to glass with it, and then still have my release in my hand. And then the open hook, simply because like as if I was stalking and I needed to hook it on there, I could look down and hook it on there versus having to clip it on the string and then say I wanted to leave it. Um, you know, for me, like my three-fingered Temptus has a, a caliper that you can close around the string. So tree stand hunting, it works great. You can clip it on the string, set it on the bow hanger, and your release is always on the bow. But out here in Utah, I wanted to be able to have a, a hook-style release that I could hook onto the string and draw back pretty easily. So I went to that style release, and it's got a whole bunch of O-rings designed into it, um, which gives it the name of Whisper, because there's basically no metal-to-metal contact when the re- release goes off. Everything has an O-ring built around it, so that, that O-ring absorbs a shock and the metal noise from the release. So it's a really quiet release. If you want to try one out, let me know. I think I've got, I think I've got like five thumb-style releases, and I have three back tension style releases here um you know like i said i'm kind of addicted to it so i buy a lot of them and try them out are they all swappable left versus right yeah are they ambidextrous okay yeah so the thumb stud you can flip from one side to the other probably my favorite um hinge style or back tension whatever you want to call it is a 
um, a Carter Honey 2 or 3. I think it's a 2. So, again, it has the same ring style, but it's got a safety that you can depress. Once you get back to full draw, then you can release the safety and begin pulling through the shot. Um, it's the, actually the release I carry as my backup release. I just I can shoot it pretty well. Um, you know, I don't shoot the command um, like what you're talking about. I try to do the pull-through method. So I hook my thumb deep around the peg on like my whisper, and then I actually basically squeeze with my my ring finger on my right hand until that release goes off. And it's the same principle with my when I shoot the Carter Honey, is basically just once I release the safety, just start squeezing with my ring finger until the bow goes off. And that's your most accurate method of shooting. Yeah, and that's that's why with the that kind of back to the stabilizer thing, I was shooting so horribly was because I couldn't get my pin to stay on target. And as I focused through the shot, you know, I was all over the place, so my groups were tremendously high. Hmm. Well, is there anything else that you've anything else you've tried from an archery perspective? Yeah, one thing that blew my mind this year that I tried. Um, I actually met him at the ATA show last year, or the year before. It's a company called Bow Snatcher. So they make this. It's an attachment that goes on your bow, and basically, it's a little peg that attaches to your bow. And then I don't even really know how to describe it. It's like a gear that is on your pack. So then you can simply take your bow over your shoulder and this little peg that sticks off your bow would go into this gear system on your pack and it will hold your bow on your pack without needing to take it off and strap it on. So you can simply attach this to your pack, reach over your shoulder, hook this peg into the, the gear system. And then when you let go, the gear rolls down so that it's holding the bow. And then when you need it, you can simply reach back and grab it, pull it up, and that gear system rolls so that it comes up to the top where it's open and you can take your your bow off your pack. And I was pleasantly surprised with that. Um, I bought that this year to try out, and I used it all season, and I absolutely enjoyed it. It's going to stay on my pack um, and stay on my bow the whole huh. entire time. It's it's a pretty interesting system. When I first looked at it, I was like, I don't, I'm not so sure about this, but not having to carry my pe- my bow in my hand all the time out here was great, especially like on some of the side hills, you get a little bit of snow. You know, I wanted to have both trekking poles in my hand, but I didn't want to have to take my pack off to strap my bow to it. I just want to be able to simply slip it in there so that if we encountered something, I could pull it off pretty quickly. I'll have to look into that because in Colorado, I did carry my bow the entire time. And with those big stabilizer rods on, my bow weighs like, seven pounds seven or eight pounds all said and done so it's it's not fun carrying that thing around um so you want to move on to your camping equipment or you want to move towards your clothing uh let's let's start with camping i don't have quite as many new things that i've tried last year so we can knock through that pretty quick and we already went through some of the camping stuff with the mule deer recap as well but kind of the highlights were would be the uh, eno double nest hammock that i tried out for the first time and just hammock and camping in general, I tried for the first time and really enjoyed it so much so that I'm optimizing that system by going with a Warbonnet Blackbird XLC hammock for next year. I got that on a Black Friday deal. Uh, basically, the main differences are it has a lot more functionality than that Eno Double Nest hammock that I used had. And it's also a little bit longer. So it's designed for people that are you know, six foot to six foot six versus the, you know, double nest. I was really pushing it being six foot tall and I'd have a little bit better comfort with a longer hammock. So from a, a hammock ignorant person's perspective, you say it has more functionality. 
uh, what type of functionality uh, do you gain? It's got like an integrated bug nest. So basically you can zip on uh, basically a fine mesh to keep the mosquitoes off of you if it's an early season hunt. Or you can zip that thing completely off and just go without the bug screen. It's got a couple little gear shelves. So like if you're sitting in the hammock, you can just take your like your cell phone or whatever and just slide it on that gear shelf and then it's within easy reach if you need it. And it's also, uh, so there's, with hammock camping, there's something called a diagonal lay. Basically, if you have a gathered end hammock, which are the most popular types, if you just lay straight in the hammock, you're going to end up being shaped like a banana and it's not going to be very comfortable. You're going to have your knees a little bit hyperextended. So what they tell you to do is actually sit in the hammock at a little bit of an angle. So your head and shoulders are closer to like, say your left and then your feet are sticking out to the right. And that flattens out the hammock. So you end up laying a lot more comfortably. And one of the things that that Warbonnet hammock does is it has a built-in asymmetrical design. So it really helps you lay flat once you have that thing set up versus the standard gathered in hammock where you got to figure it out a little bit. Yeah, which makes sense. I've the little bit of hammock use that I've done is I have that banana shape, and that's why I'm like, how do people like this? You know, and I don't know if it's just the hammock. I think I had mine. I don't even know what my hammock is. I've had it for years and only used it a couple of times. But yeah, it makes sense to want to lay more flat, like diagonally across the hammock, than in the banana shape. Yeah, hammock camping is one of those things where it's kind of like saddles, where at first people might try them out and not really like it, but if you know how to do it right and you experiment a little bit and you figure it out. It's like you never want to, never gonna want to go back. Uh, so one of the other things with like the hammocks is your insulation and your padding. It's like you're sleeping on the ground. You got a pad, air mattress, or like a closed cell foam, and you use a sleeping bag or a quilt. Well, with a hammock, you can also use those same things. But what's a lot more comfortable is if you use a top quilt and an under quilt, and just skip the pad entirely. So to that end, I ordered a, a lightened equipment down 20 degree quilt to use as a top quilt. And then from ripstopbytheroll.com, I ordered an apex under quilt kit. And so I'll be able to basically take, um, I think it was 5.0 weight apex insulation and make basically like a 30 degree under quilt to be able to use with that hammock system. Yeah, I actually went with the enlightened equipment quilt this year, um, backpacking. I think it's a I want to say it's a 20 degree long wide and they're uh, treated down mm-hmm. and I used it for the first time this year. I really enjoyed it. Uh, you hear a lot of people, you know, some people really don't like quilts. They're too drafty, things like that. You know, once I kind of figured it out after the first night, I really like it because me and a, I toss and turn a lot. So with a, a sleeping bag, I would twist myself around inside that sleeping bag and it'd be all turned around <laughs> me. But with the quilt, I'm able to keep the quilt, you know, in the position and kind of roll underneath of the quilt because it has straps that goes around your pad that you can clip in. So it keeps the top part of it in place and you can kind of tuck those edges of the quilt underneath of you so that you get that full wrap of insulation. One thing that you said that I think is kind of an important note is that you ordered a long and wide version and you're not a very big guy. And so I think a lot of times, at least from my experience, uh, talking to people who have used quilts and some that have liked them and some that have not, it seems like generally if you're going to be on the ground, going with a longer, wider version is only going to help you help prevent drafts. With the hammock, I ended up getting a regular, regular because just the way that the hammock is set up, 
you don't really have the opportunity to toss and turn as much. And then you got the under quilt, which covers you as well. So you don't need that extra width, but on the ground, it seems like people are always usually happier with a wider quilt. Yeah. I went with a wide cause I sleep on my side a lot. So it takes up a little bit more room, uh, than say if it was a regular. And then I went with a long specifically because like if I had wet clothes or damp clothes, I could throw them down in the foot box and be able to dry those inside of my quilt and still not really interfere a whole lot with my sleeping ability. And then that way, if I needed to pull the top part of the quilt up over my head or whatever, I could do that because I had the extra length to be able to do that. Have you tried that at all yet? Throwing wet clothes in that treated down quilt? Yeah. So I've had some damp clothes that I've thrown in there and I'm not going to say they completely dried, but they were definitely drier than they were the night before. And I was worried about it saturating the down in that. Um, but I had no problems with it. Um, they seemed to come out a lot drier. I mean, they were probably mildly damp at best. Okay. That's really good to know. Cause that was one of the big concerns I had when I ordered that down quilt was, you know, if I, if I get an apex quilt, I know I can just throw the wet stuff in there and I'm not gonna have to worry about it as much. When we went to Colorado this year, there were some times we'd get back to camp and I'd have wet pants from walking through wet grass. And it's like, it's so comfortable just to take those pants off and just put on like a nice dry pair of, you know, like wool long underwear and then go to sleep. And then you wake up the next morning and your pants are still wet and they're 30 degrees and they're no fun to put on. So, <laughs> yeah. And so for those, that's the interesting thing between down and synthetic insulation is down once it gets wet can lose its insulative properties you know they do have some treated downs but eventually that will get to the point where it's non-insulative whereas with a like an apex style that's a material insulation you can get that pretty much completely wet and it's still going to have some very good insulative properties to it you know what i wonder if i could do if i have a down top quilt and an apex which is synthetic insulation under quilt if I could take anything that's wet or damp and just kind of slide it in between the hammock fabric and the underquilt. I don't see why you couldn't. Clothing-wise, have you tried anything new from the clothing aspect this year? I haven't tried anything. I'm a Kuyu guy. Uh, the clothing fits me well. I don't have any problems with the uh, you know, durability of it or the, the particular um, garments that they make. So I tend to stick with them. I didn't pick up anything new this year from them. Same thing, whitetail versus out west. Use yep. QE for whitetail too. Yep. I, I like the open, lighter colored pattern, whitetail hunting, than a, a dark blobby pattern. So they're real light tans or grays, stuff like that. I've used that since they came out like before 2012. So like 2007, maybe, I think is when they came out. Somewhere around there. Yeah. The only two new things that I really got and used this year, in addition to all the uh, Cabela's and first light stuff that I used last year. And I, I have a video on my YouTube channel where I basically went over every single piece of clothing that I have. Uh, the two things that I really have gotten more testing done on this year are the first light sanctuary bibs. I'd only had an opportunity to wear them like a couple times last season. This year I got a lot more use out of them. And then the first light Uncapagre, I think I'm saying that right, jacket, which is basically just a puffy jacket. It's a lot thinner than you would expect it to be being a puffy jacket. However, I did wear it basically over the top of all of my other layers when it got really cold during like the Minnesota firearm season. It's nice because you can pack it so small. You can just shove it into a pack and basically just force it to fit into whatever space you have available and then basically put it on top of everything else. And it really did make a difference when on those days where it was 
you know, maybe 19 degrees, 20 degrees, but just crazy windy sitting out on the edge of a swamp. Just having that extra layer really made a big difference. Whereas tip normally I wouldn't have had that, you know, I would have had basically my fleece and my wool, uh, and then my outer jacket, which I'm using the Woodbury. But, uh, yeah, that made a big difference the few days that I've needed it. And then the sanctuary bibs, I mean, they're just, they're really well thought out. Ever since I've gotten those, I knew they were going to be something I would like, and that opinion hasn't changed. Um, they're, they got zippers every place you'd want to have a zipper. You can vent them all the way up to the hip. You can even vent them all the way around the butt. Like if you wanted to, you could have the zipper situated so you could just drop the pants out. And then the fabric is extremely soft and quiet, uh, with the exception of the seat portion of it, which is waterproof. So that is a little bit scratchier of a, a sound if you rub against it. Um, but overall, they're they're warm, they're functional. I really like those bibs. Yeah, that jacket. I've heard a lot of people really like that jacket and really recommend it. And I've only had just a limited amount of experience with it. Um, a cousin of mine actually has one. And like I said, the first time I picked that thing up, it was almost see-through. If you looked up and looked through the light at it, there's almost no insulation in it. And it was really surprising to me because like a lot of people say, you know, it's a really great jacket, you know, to throw on over everything else and it keeps them really warm. But when you look through that thing, you know, there's look like well, there was little to no insulation in it. So I was surprised. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a trade-off thing, I guess. The more insulation you have in a puffy jacket, the warmer it's going to keep you, but also it's going to you know, increase the pack down size that you get. One thing about it is that, you know, being kind of a DWR puffy jacket designed for more Western hunters, it's not as quiet of a fabric, not as quiet of a jacket, I don't think, as something like the Woodbury, which is more of a whitetail design jacket. So that is something to keep in mind. And those days where I used it, you know, during the firearm season, it was so cold that I didn't really care. So I put it on over the top of everything and it was windy enough that you couldn't hear anything regardless. So yeah, for that purpose, it worked well. If I were going to wear it for like bow hunting though, I would probably want to keep it underneath as more of a middle insulating layer and keep your quieter, you know, surface materials on the outside. That's something that I think a lot of companies are doing now is they kind of have more Eastern Western related garments like that because of the materials that you can get away with using like you said in the west that noisier fabric's not necessarily as big as a deal as it is compared to in the east so i think you've started seeing you know sitka and first light start to really break their lines up and offer different jackets and different materials for whatever style of hunting you're doing yeah and i think it's a good thing in general uh it is kind of hard on the wallet but uh, <laughs> especially, if, you know, if you go both, go both ways and you want to get east, west specific, but we've talked about this before. You can, you can make gear work either way and just get by. It's all just how in depth you want to get and how optimized you want to make your, your systems. Yeah. I mean, I've ran Kuyu since they came out and they came out strictly as a Western hunting product and they still are. And I, like I said, I've used them back in Arkansas, used them in Virginia, used them in Missouri. And I've never had any problems with any of their garments not being adequate enough for Eastern style hunting. Yeah, there's a couple products that they make that might be a little louder fabric than others. But the same thing you said, you know, I may throw my puffy on and then I may throw my wool shirt on over that just to simply knock down that fabric noise. So for me this year, I picked up some new boots, I guess. Well, shoes and boots. So I went with Solomon's. They seem to really fit my foot well. And I went with their Quest 
uh, their mid boot basically. And I used them and I kept having some pretty rough knee pains. I actually went to physical therapy to try to get rid of them. And then I bought some of their trail running shoes and started using them and noticed my knee pain went away with those shoes. So what I've figured out is for me particularly, I need a softer soled shoe for hiking in the mountains and my knee hurts less because I tend to flex my foot a lot more as I walk. But as if I keep a stiffer boot, stiffer soled boot, I tend to like twist my knee at different angles to try to get my foot set on the hill. So it causes me to twist my knee in all sorts of different angles. Whereas if I have a more flexible sole on my shoe, I don't do that. So it was really interesting. And I just picked up another set of their forces um, over Black Friday. So I'm interested to try those. I've got them broken in now where I feel like I could take them up in the mountain. So I may do a little shed hunting in those this year to kind of see how they work for me before I take them up on a hunt. Yeah, there's certain certain scenarios where I'd love to be able to take just basically like a trail running shoe. The biggest thing for me is that, I mean, for the most part, those type of things aren't waterproof. They basically get torn up pretty easily, but maybe those, those Solomons might be different. Yeah, well, the first pair of their trail running shoes that I picked up, um, their speed crosses is what they're called. They are not waterproof, and that got me good when I hunted this past year um, up there for a few days. Like It ended up raining and then snowing and I actually hiked out with them on, and it was like three, three and a half miles. And by the time I got down, my feet were frozen, and they hurt from coming down um, in those because they weren't waterproof. So this pair I just picked up is a Gore-Tex pair. So I figure if I run that Gore-Tex pair with a pair of gaiters, I'll be pretty good and, and a little bit of moisture, basically. I would imagine I'm probably more of a stiffer-soled guy because I've gone with kind of the minimalist trail running shoes and those minimalist style, you know, when the barefoot shoe craze came out, there was, you know, like the, you had the Vibram Five Fingers or you had basically every trail running shoe brand came out with a minimalist style shoe, the Nike Freeze or, you know, like Merrill had a pair of the minimal, you know, that type of style. And anytime I tried a shoe like that, I would have foot pain, you know, within a few weeks of running on them. So I think I'm, my foot style is a little bit better suited for a stiffer sole, but that's something that I think it's interesting that you seem to tend toward a different style of sole than I do. It just goes to show how personal shoe selection and boot selection can be from one person to the next. Yeah, typically my day-to-day boot, you know, is like a unsupported soft-soled cowboy boot style slip-on boot. So I was kind of used to that no ankle support soft sole, and I think that's kind of what led me a lot more towards the trail running shoe style for the mountains compared to a solid stiff boot. It's also a lot easier with those type of softer shoes to be quiet, I think. Yeah, you don't have that. You can feel a lot more of the ground and your foot flexes with it compared to just stomping around, in my opinion. But So let's move towards tree stand style equipment. Um, I know you've switched to the Kestrel this year. How are you liking it? I like it a lot, I think. So before that, I'd use, obviously, the uh, rock harness and sit drag combination. And I also used my Lone Wolf Assault tree stand, a combination of those two. This year, I used the Arrow Hunter Kestrel for 100% of the sits. And it wasn't necessarily that, you know, I thought that for every particular sit, the Arrow Hunter is going to be absolutely the best thing to choose for that particular scenario. More so, I wanted to make sure that I got as much experience with it as possible to really make sure I pounded out the learning curve as well as I could. And I could basically speak to it. Uh, from somebody that had a lot of experience saddle hunting. Um, so 
I basically forced myself even into scenarios where I normally wouldn't have chosen a saddle if I was going like with one of my older two systems. But I, I got to say, I've, I've grown to like it a lot. I think it's a lot better of an option than the tree stand for probably, in my opinion, 90% of scenarios. There's still probably 10% of setups where I think a tree stand might be the better option. I'm not one of these type of guys where I think one is like always better than the other. You see guys in like Saddle Hunter that say they'll never go back to a tree stand. Uh, saddle's the only way to go. And you'll see guys that, on the other hand, have tried saddles for a couple weeks, couple months, and say it wasn't for me. Go back to a tree stand. That's the only thing they're ever going to use. I think they're both great tools. They both have their scenarios in which they're very good. I would say that for me, the only thing that determines what would be a better tree stand spot than maybe a saddle spot would be if you have a tree that's leaning a certain direction and you have your main trail on a given side of the tree, you always want to try and make it so that the trail's on the, the side of the tree where it's going to take the least amount of movement for you to shoot. And if the tree, the only real tree that gives you a great opportunity is leaning basically forward, then it's going to be a good tree for a, a saddle setup because you don't want to be leaning basically with the tree pushing you forward on a hang-on stand. But if it was going back the other way, then it's going to be more comfortable kind of leaning back as a, a tree stand tree. And same thing kind of goes if you have a, a bunch of front cover versus a front or back, a front, a bunch of back cover on a, a particular tree. But other than that, I think that I'm starting to lean more as I get more and more experience using a saddle. I'm starting to lean more towards using the saddle where in the past I would have chosen to use a hang on stand. Yeah. For me, I'm one of those guys that I'll probably never get away from a saddle. And that's just because I find tree stands horribly uncomfortable. And like I said, it's not because the saddle is the perfect setup for every tree that's out there or every spot that's out there. It's merely for a comfort point for me. So I may have to choose a different tree 10 yards farther away from the trail than what I really want to be. But I, I will do it just because I cannot stand tree stands sitting on them, standing on them. I just, they drive me nuts. That's the one thing that really pushed me towards, you know, looking into saddles. So that's that's my biggest thing is I just I can't get comfortable in a tree stand whatsoever. I think one other thing I should point out too, in particular, comparing the Kestrel versus the Rock Harness and Sit Drag setup, because I know I've gotten plenty of questions from guys on Facebook surrounding those. Because obviously the the Kestrel is a lot more expensive of a, a startup option than a Rock Harness and Sit Drag is, especially if the people already have a Rock Harness and having used both. They obviously both work. Uh, for me, I thought the sit drag rock harness had a little bit shorter of a comfort curve in terms of just finding what is your optimal setup. Uh, but once I dialed in the Kestrel, I thought it was just as comfortable. I've taken naps in it. I can sit in the, a tree all day, and I have sit, sat in a tree all day uh, plenty of times this year in that setup. But that's probably the only advantage I would say would go to the, um, the rock harness setup. I think... In terms of the Kestrel, one of the things I liked was that it's a little bit easier from the get-go to have accessory hooks because the whole backside of it has got that Molly webbing system. So I've already loaded that thing up with, you know, bow pull ropes and little pieces of paracord to hang my climbing sticks from. And Whereas with the Sitrag, you got to do a lot more modifications and a lot more sewing just to get that same functionality. Linemen's loops are probably the biggest thing. That's always something that never really felt a hundred percent comfortable about with any kind of rock harness system is that you always have to do DIY on the lineman's loop setups. 
and that just always made me a little bit nervous. You look for a rock harness that has lineman's loops and they don't really exist. At least I haven't found a great option for it. Whereas the Kestrel has those lineman's loops made by a professional company. And then I think the other main difference is obviously that the rock harness has a belay loop on the front, whereas the Kestrel does not. So if you have people that are using like a one stick climbing method, you kind of need that belay loop. Also, there's certain arborist climbing techniques that would use a belay loop. So I've pretty much gone to using multiple climbing sticks for climbing regardless of the setup. So I don't really need that loop anymore. And really the only thing that that belay loop now does is basically make it harder to go to the bathroom. This one extra thing to pull out of the way. So yeah, I'd say now if I compare them both, like from the get go, I would say the Kestrel is probably a better option for me and my style than going with the rock harness sit drag. It was kind of a nice introduction into saddle hunting for me just because it was a low cost of entry. But yeah, I would definitely recommend the Kestrel now. Completely agree. I mean, it's a it's a pretty big investment to go into, especially if you've never tried saddle hunting of any sort, to dive into the $300 price range to get that. You can also, you know, people try to compare the price of the Kestrel to a price of tree stands. A lot of people know what a tree stand is going to be like and kind of know how it's going to fit and feel on them. Compared to diving into saddle hunting, it's really not not the same. You know, you've, there's a bigger learning curve with saddle hunting by far. Um, you know, and the biggest thing was the lineman's belt loops, designing all of that so that it's what hunters needed specifically for hunting compared to having arborist things like the belay loop built into it, things like that. So, you know, obviously this, the Kestrel's there. Um, you know, again, it's a pretty pretty hefty amount of money um, to get into it. So like you said, you know, sometimes that sit drag system, I'm not a big fan of it personally because, you know, it's not designed to be used above ground level, you know, in conjunction with the rock harness, can it be used safely? Absolutely. Uh, using it solely by itself, not, nah, I don't recommend it personally. Yeah, I wouldn't either. The only way I'd recommend somebody use a sit drag is if they're using it in conjunction with a rock harness and having a tether hooked into not only your bridge, but also the belay loop on the rock harness at all times. So you have that backup safety feature if something does happen just because it wasn't built for above tree level. So that's the biggest thing is just keep your butt safe up in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned climbing sticks. I know this is a big thing that a lot of people have watched and seen is your DIY climbing stick video. And it seems like it spurred a lot of DIY people. I'm actually getting ready to do my own kind of based off your system as well. So yeah, tell us more about that and how that's worked. I, I love them. They're my favorite climbing sticks now by far they're lighter they're easier to use they're the perfect step spacing for me basically they have all the advantages i think of a muddy stick minus the rope cleat system which is i could have probably done but it was would have been a lot more money i've gotten pretty fast using just the versa button rope mod with the am steel that seems to work fine for me we used to be carrying three four sticks in addition to a tree stand in addition to all your other gear you know, it got to be pretty heavy. Whereas now if I'm using a saddle setup, if I'm using, or even like a, a lone wolf assault and basically have that frame to lay everything onto those sticks are so light that carrying a third or fourth stick isn't even that big of a deal anymore. So, you know, going four sticks with just like a single loop eight or which I like to do 
is not that big of a deal versus saying, you know, taking three sticks that have double loop aiders are a little bit less stable. I'll just, I've gotten more to the point now where I'll just go with the additional stick because it's, you know, not that much additional weight. It's not going from a total weight setup of, you know, 12 or 14 pounds to all of a sudden you add on another pound, 11 ounces. That's nothing. Not even going to notice that. I've had to turn down quite a few people that have asked me to make those sticks for them. I could um, only just, imagine. It's just not worth the liability for me. And I looked into what the insurance would cost uh, if I wanted to make those or at least make the steps and sell them as like a DIY kit. It's just not worth it uh, for me. Uh, so there are ways that you can make steps similar to those DIY if you have access to a drill press and like a metal cutting bandsaw. You can use some 6061 aluminum to fashion your own double steps. And then that tubing is just 6061 T6 aluminum square extrusion that, you know, mine started off as 24 inch sections just because it was, it came pre-cut in those lengths pretty cheap. And 16th inch wall thickness is what I used. And I'm a pretty, I guess, average weight guy, around 180 pounds. Uh, so the lone wolf sticks, like for example, or most other sticks on the market that have that design are going to use like eighth inch wall. So they're going to be heavier from that, but they're also going to be able to hold a lot more weight. So if you're a bigger guy, uh, might not be worth it to go with the thinner wall tubing. I just really don't know. I haven't tested it because I haven't given my sticks to any big guys to try out. So I, I'm doing something similar based off your video kind of, except for I'm not going to have my steps machined. I actually bought some of the muddy hunter sticks that came with a double step on them basically and I salvaged basically all of the hardware so the standoffs and the steps off of them and then I'm going to buy some aluminum and basically make my step spacing for me and then I'm going to use kind of the muddy rope cam cleat system it's just because that's what I'm comfortable with I've used it for so long I've used it since muddy came out with those sticks that I really like that setup so I'm going to kind of do mine similar to yours DIY but more of the things you can buy versus the things you have to build, like you see and see in your um, steps, basically. Mine are just going to be a salvage part. So it's going to be interesting to look at the weight of them compared to yours when it's all said and done. A Frankenstick. Yeah, basically exactly <laughs> what it's going to be. The Muddy Hunter sticks, the steps on those are what I've determined are actually the steps that I designed mine off of. And at the time, I just saw the picture, and that's what I used. I didn't know what they could come from but it was the Muddy Hunter sticks. So those are going to have a little bit of a slot, like a one-inch slot that's cut into them that you'll be able to fit onto your one-inch tubing that you buy. And in order for that not to rock, it basically has to have a zero tolerance. So you can imagine if that slot is cut a little bit wider than your stick tubing, if you step on one side of the stick, it's going to lean an eighth of an inch that way and then vice versa. But what you can do to kind of eat up that tolerance stack up is just take some JV weld and coat the inside of that uh, slot or that trough and then bolt it onto your stick. And then once that hardens, it becomes rock solid. Yeah, it's exactly what I'm planning to do. And speaking of that, I got a shout out. Um, Jefferson, here's your shout out. He's actually the guy who sold me the sticks. Uh, when I bought the sticks from him, I actually just told him to strip all the hardware off the sticks and just mail me the hardware. I don't need the actual frame of the sticks. Um, so we wanted a shout out on the podcast for that. So there's a shout out. <laughs> nice. Anything else you got that you want to touch on tree stand wise? Um, the only thing that I guess I have found that for 
carrying my bow and my pack and everything else once I'm up in the tree. The HME accessory hook belt has very quickly become my favorite accessory. I've tried bow hangers that work off paracord systems. I've used ones that work off strap systems like Lone Wolf has their utility belt that I used for several years. But that HME one, I really like a lot. The hooks that are molded that come on that strap, they're like, I couldn't have designed a better molded component myself. Like they're just it, very similar to the, very similar to the tree steps that I modeled up and sent to you as like a, an example. They have a lot of those same features. That's pretty impressive to hear coming from the DIY guy that he couldn't design anything better himself. So they must have. Sometimes the DIY stuff that you can build is not going to be as optimized because you're just limited in what you can, what you can fashion or what you can fabricate in your garage versus what you can make if you have access to, you know, $20,000 worth of tooling. I agree. It's, it's like an $8.99 thing at Fleet Farm. It's just got a cam buckle where you basically, it's just a one inch strap, green strap, which I like. It's just got that cam buckle. And then it has, I think three or four hooks that it comes with. And I just basically put one hook on my right side, which is my bow hand side. And I can put my bow on that. If I'm using the recurve, I'll just hook the quiver on it, the quiver hood. And then on the other side of the tree, I'll have my pack hanging from uh, one of those hooks. And if I'm hunting with a firearm, then what I can do is just drop that basically down to the same level where I can then use those hooks as additional uh, stabilization for when I'm trying to shoot that weapon. So yeah, let's let's bump to technology. I know it's something we both use this year. We use the the Onyx maps. And I was going to ask you, did you do the multi-state program or did you do the single purchase state or do you use the chip? Uh, I got the nationwide, I think it's elite membership. Yeah. Which when I'm just hunting like Minnesota or if I'm just hunting Wisconsin, like I don't really need the the Onyx, I guess, uh, system just because if I'm hunting public land anyway, I can figure out what I have available to me in a couple afternoons of just searching the web and searching the DNR websites and searching the county websites. And I can just kind of map it out from there. And it might take me several hours, but eventually I'll get all the info that I need for the next several years. But once I started reaching out and looking into multiple states, start scouting Wyoming, which I have a couple points for, doing some more research into Colorado, start looking into like Utah where you're out hunting in. And then, you know, like a couple of weeks ago, I took a trip to North Dakota to do some scouting for a rut trip next year for whitetail. And the more I started looking into those multiple states, the more I realized like how much of a convenience having that elite membership is just because I can take a 10,000 foot view and say, okay, how is the public land, you know, situated in this particular state? Is it just a bunch of like checkerboard BLM land? Is it just a bunch of gigantic wildlife refuges or national forests that are kind of blocked together in certain regions of the state? And I mean, it can take what would be hours and hours and hours of searching and digging and researching. And I can just have it right at my fingertips. For me, the biggest thing, you know, I, I did the same thing. I went with a nationwide, you know, planning on, I planned on hunting out of a couple States this year, maybe in that Arizona a little bit later, but one of the big things was they have the share feature. So you can drop a waypoint and hit share and share it to a friend. So I've got a lot of guys back East that I'm still in close contact with and still hunt a lot. And I'm kind of a, a, digital scouting nerd I guess you would say so like just tonight you know a buddy sent me a waypoint you know for an area he wanted me to look at from the aerial view to kind of help scout with him 
decide where you know where travel corridors are going to be and stuff like this so it's real useful if you have quite a few people that use it in your group to just be able to share and because you have that same uh you know nationwide map you can look at the property owners around it or the public land around it and know what it is so that if you wanted to go out somewhere in that area or you know you can talk about the different property owners who owns that property um, you know, like for an example, one of the buddies that sent me a link, I actually knew the neighboring property owner and put him in touch with that person. They have a couple other kind of interesting options too for mapping. Like they got a Boone and Crockett layer that I just recently found out about. There's a couple other interesting data layers, like uh, there's a roadless area one too. Yeah, it's for out west, that's a big one. Yeah, find out which places are the furthest and most remote away from all the major highways. That one was pretty cool. Back here where I hunt, it, it all looks the same because there's really no place you can go that's far enough away from a road. But out west, it started to become a lot more apparent. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so to me, I think it's – it for me, it was worth the investment, you know, by far just to be able to have that ability. You know, to be able to run it in the mountains without your cell phone, you can turn your cell phone on airplane mode and still use the GPS, be able to see where you're at, share a waypoint with a buddy if he's going to come meet you up at camp, where camp's at. You know, if somebody kills a bull or something like that, they can simply send you that waypoint, then you know where to meet them um, to help pack out. Yeah, the only thing that I would say I would like to see is I would like to see the ability to be able to download maps onto an SD card in your phone. So like my Galaxy S7 right now with, you know, the various apps and, and, you know, pictures and videos and whatnot that I have on the phone, I only have like a gigabyte of data left on my phone, but I have a 128 gigabyte SD card that I have a ton of stuff stored on as well, but I'm not able to store and download the maps from Onyx onto that massive SD card. They go onto the same uh, internal storage that my phone has, so then it becomes a lot more uh, challenging to find space for everything that I need on that internal storage because there's certain apps and whatnot that also have to go on that internal storage. It can't be put on the SD card. Something that I think would be awesome for them to do if they could incorporate it is like a bearing feature. So if you bet a buck on a ridge somewhere over and you're going to make a stock, you can take a compass bearing and then you could enter that into your phone and it draws a line on that compass bearing across the ridge. So you have a really good idea of where that deer is bedded. So that when you circle around, you know which ridge you need to be on or where that buck is going to be based off of that bearing mark that you gave. And it'd be interesting if they incorporated a distance in it as well, because most people are using range finders. So if you can range out there, you know, 3,000 yards or 2,000 yards, enter that with a bearing in there, then it will give you kind of an idea of exactly where that buck is bedded so that when you make your stock in, you know once you're getting real close to it. I think... Backcountry Navigator had that ability where you could just basically take a compass bearing. But my phone, for whatever reason, doesn't seem to calibrate as well for compasses. So if I need to use a compass to, like, triangulate, like, where a turkey's roosted or something, I'll usually end up just using, like, an actual compass or, like, a handheld GPS to get a more accurate compass bearing. Uh, to me, it would be something to be really interesting to see. Even if it – I mean, it doesn't have to be pinpoint accurate. If it can get me within – 100 yards 50 yards i don't know i mean just something that will help get back on i mean we had a case last year actually where we thought we were on the ridge the bull was on and he was actually one ridge over um you know because it was a ridge we couldn't see from where we glassed him at you know he went off the side of the hill we thought he bedded on that side and he actually went down and crossed over to the next ridge and we were just hunting the wrong ridge so you can actually have the app pulled up right now if you hit the 
location button to bring you to your location and then you tap it again it'll switch to a mode where you're actually the map rotates to face the direction you're facing so i guess if, they, if you you can draw a line that way true and then so i guess you can kind of do it now with what they have set up so yeah um you got a drone didn't you i did i bought a mavic pro which is a drone that's basically known for its video capabilities in a smaller package so dgi is kind of one of the main drone companies and they had over the past few years started off with like a phantom line so they had like the phantom drone then they had like the phantom 2 phantom 3 phantom 4 and they're all fairly large i guess kind of like mid-sized drones they have some higher end ones that are used for professional videography but all of these drones that they have basically have their own camera system with a really good three-axis gimbal stabilization and they all have a 4k camera that has basically an aspherical lens so you have basically not like the opposite of a GoPro, you know, GoPro has a fisheye lens, at least standard it does. So you're not going to get that kind of a, an appearance of the camera. So it ends up looking a lot more professional. Uh, so with the Mavic Pro drone, they basically took a lot of the uh, similar technology off of their Phantom drones and they shrunk it into a smaller package. And it's got like a 27 minute battery life on it. It's got a ton of features to help prevent you from flying it into trees or, you know, you can... If you lose contact with the drone, it'll automatically fly back to the same spot that you took off from, little features like that, like visual optical avoidance. So it, it actually has sensors, visual sensors on the camera, on the drone that, you know, if you're trying to fly it into like a building or something, it'll sense that the building is there. And if you want to take off at a certain location, you can have it, you know, kind of memorize what that location looks like from, you know, 20 feet off the ground. And then when you fly back and return to home, it'll make sure that that same location looks the same so that when it drops back down and lands, it lands literally in like the exact same spot that you took off from. So there's a lot of really uh, great te technological features built into that drone. I think it's it's pretty fun to fly to. That's crazy. I mean, I don't know a whole lot about drones, but that just those features is mind-blowing to me that they can actually have drones that do that now. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, drones in general, they're kind of like 3D printers. The technology is getting so popular that the price is really getting driven down a lot. I mean, you can buy drones for well less than $100, not the same kind of quality of camera and, and size and whatnot, but just a drone in general. Um, same thing with like a 3D printer. You can buy a 3D printer for less than you can buy an Xbox now. Wow. The joys of technology. <laughs> All right, so let's we're kind of running a little long on time, but we'll wrap this up. Let's um what are some things for 2018 that you're looking to try or you're looking forward to? So, a couple things that I already touched on, the camping gear, the Warbonnet Blackbird hammock, uh the lighting equipment down 20 degree quilt. I bought a First Light Arrowwall shirt for basically scouting, early season stuff. Uh, just because otherwise the, the traumas that I have, they get a little bit warm sometimes if it's really hot out. I got, I'm getting a Stierka S5 scope for my slug gun. And I'm hoping to be able to break that out for the first time when we do our Saddlepalooza. And I was such a big fan of the binoculars that I had had from them that I wanted to try and stay within that brand. And we decided on that 1.75 through 5X with a 32 millimeter objective. And so that should be coming in the mail pretty quick. I'm excited to get that out and try it out. 
um, and then the uh, Primo's turkey vest. They have a vest that's called the rocker vest where, you know, kind of your typical turkey vest will have a, a butt pad that you'll sit on. This one kind of has sort of a built-in kind of like a crazy creek chair uh, where it doesn't have a pad, but it's basically got a seat built in with straps. So if you lean back, you're leaning back against the weight of your thighs. And so you don't have to be sitting up against a tree. You can basically sit down on any piece of ground anywhere. And I've used that the few times that I've gone fall turkey hunting this year. Love the amount of gear storage that it has and just looking forward to continuing to use that this spring. Sounds like you've got a, a pretty extensive list. My list is not as long. Uh, of course, the ATA show hasn't happened yet. My list will probably grow tremendously after that. Uh, you know, obviously my DIY sticks, I'm excited to get those done um, and try those out once I get them done. And then a gear retrieval device that I've been interested in for a long time that I'm probably going to end up breaking down and ordering. Um, it's called the Booger Gear Retriever. Uh, so basically, if you drop something from your tree stand, you can lower this down and they show it pulling up all kinds of things from water bottles to your release, basically. Um, so I'm going to pick one of those up just to have it. It's going to be interesting to play with it. Um, and then probably the biggest thing, I'm going to try to go uh, Joel Turner thumb ring off of my traditional bow. I'm going to try to make that transition over the year. And I don't know if I'm going to do it off a right-handed or a left-handed riser yet, but I'm going to try to go to that. So that's the biggest thing that I'm looking forward to is how I'm going to do that. I'll be looking forward to see how that turns out. Yeah, me too. Because Joel Turner makes it look pretty easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, have a feeling it, I have a feeling it's probably not going to be as easy as he makes it look, but yeah, no that's doubt. I'll be interested to watch you do it. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I think, you know, I haven't seen a whole lot of people go to it. I know he's a big um, advocate of it, and it's kind of interesting you think about it. It's probably one of the oldest ways to shoot a bow, really. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's it's a clean release. It's good. You know, obviously the difference is right versus left-handed riser, you know, how much crawl you're going to need on the string and things like that. So I'm still trying to see if I can find a left-handed riser. And I, if I can find a left-handed riser, I'll do it off a left-handed bow. If not, I'll stick with my Satori and see if I can do it with that. There's a lot of there's a lot of advantage to shooting with a thumb ring if you can get it to work. Yeah, so, so. it's going to be going to be interesting. And it's uh, kind of ironic that this comes up. My uh my little turd of a dog actually the other day decided to eat my um, my Yoast tab. He decided to eat everything but the aluminum part of my Yoast tab. So <laughs> I have a metal frame of a Yoast tab that's kind of scratched up. So it's I think it was kind of a sign to push me to go to the thumb ring now. Interesting. Well, you got a lot of time to play with it now. Yeah, exactly. I got all the way till next season. So, so that'll wrap up our 2017 new gear review. We really try to focus on things that we tried for the first time this year. Diving into everything we use would take several podcasts. That being said, both of us have gear reviews on our YouTube channels as well. Mine are either product specific, like the review I just uploaded on my Stierka S9 binoculars, or they're topic specific, like the review I uploaded where I went piece by piece through every piece of clothing in my whitetail hunting system. Bobby's reviews are mainly product specific. Those videos can be found on either the DIY Sportsman YouTube channel or the channel Boudreaux Boswell. That's all one word. In addition, I've added a new feature onto the DIY Sportsman website. If you click on content and go to gear lists, we'll have fully itemized gear lists for various hunting types. For example, clicking on the September Colorado elk slash deer gear list will show you everything that I would pack on that type of trip. Similarly, clicking on the whitetail hunting gear list would show everything I could bring along for whitetail. 
The layering of the garments, of course, will depend on the weather any given day. These are meant to be living documents, meaning that they'll be continually updated as we improve our gear lists. And just a quick disclaimer, whenever you see an Amazon link to a piece of gear, it's an affiliate link, which just means that Amazon will give us a small kickback percentage for the purchase price. If you want to do that, cool, I appreciate it, but honestly, we want you guys to shop around for the best deal, because that's what we would do. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, wherever you commonly listen to podcasts. Check out our social media feeds, as well as those for the Sportsman's Nation. iTunes reviews are always appreciated. And we sincerely hope you guys have all had a very Merry Christmas and enjoy the new year. We'll continue to pump out podcasts every other week. Thanks for listening.